Welcome to the weekly Investor Insights call. Throughout the call, all participants will be in listen-only mode. On our hand to our hosts, Gavin uh, Ralston and Philippe Lespinard. Gentlemen, please begin. Hello and welcome from me. This is Gavin Ralston. Uh, welcome to the last call of 2018. Uh, the next one will be on the 8th of January 2019. And we're bringing to an end what's been a very disappointing year for returns from almost all asset classes apart from cash. Uh, you may remember, if you listened to the podcast last week, that uh, Keith was talking about the deteriorating growth outlook for 2019 and the heightened perception of risk from the US-China trade dispute. Sentiment has become even more negative in the last week. The newest factor which has been added to this has been the pretty weak data from China and the growing perception that the action the authorities there have taken is not adequate to the task of maintaining growth. So equities in particular have continued to price in this very weak outlook. And since the call a week ago, the S&P has dropped 4.5%, perhaps reflecting the fact that optimism elsewhere was never as pronounced as it has been in the US. The fall in other markets has been much less sharp. The euro stocks is down about 1%, and the emerging markets index is actually up over the last five days. The other significant factor has been the continuing weakness in the oil price. So Brent crude this morning is is trading at $58, having been as high as 85 at the end of September. In bond markets, which is where we will focus today with Philippe, um, the markets have been much more stable with a 10-year yield trading at about 284, 285%. However, we have seen the yield curve flattening and five-year yields in the U.S. are now slipped slightly below two-year yields, an inversion of the normal state, which would be consistent with expectations for a recession. So, Philippe, turning to you, um, the, obviously the big event of this week will be the Fed meeting, which is today and tomorrow. W- what should we be looking out for when uh, the chairman makes a statement at the end of it? Uh, well, there are two, version, two possible versions of events. One would be what I would call a uh, dovish hike. So um, uh, when they would increase the rate by 25 basis points, as they told us they planned to do, uh, but indicate that they are now uh, at neutral and therefore they're observing events and developments and they're completely data dependent from here, which, if you recall, means that the, next, uh, the two hikes that were priced in the market for next year would be essentially taken out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the other version of the event is that they pass on hiking rates, um, and uh, not because of pressure of, uh, from Mr. Trump, um, uh, but uh, but largely because, of course, uh, as Gavin alluded to, not only has market sentiment deteriorated, but the economic sentiment has also weakened a lot since their last meeting. And at their last meeting, they told us that they were getting close to the neutral range. They defined it as a range, not as a point. Um, and also that uh, from there uh, they would be much more uh, much more looking at uh, economic developments uh, to to chart policy. So it could well be that having taken on the recent weakness in sentiment, they'd basically say uh, that we would uh, we would pass and then look to raise interest rates at a further time when you know, sentiment is better. Now, I my sense is that a dovish hike would probably be the best outcome for markets because in a sense. Uh, the, the Fed would then say, uh, you know, we've delivered what we said to deliver, and from now we're basically in neutral mode. I think it would probably mean that the dollar weakens a bit, but most participants wouldn't be that worried about the U.S. economic outlook. 
whereas if they decide to pass on the rate and therefore to uh, postpone it or not not do any, uh, I think the you could have a sense that they're suddenly very worried about something mm -hmm. that they weren't worried about when they last spoke to us and it wasn't that long ago. Um, so it can't have been that much data having happened to make uh, the central bank change its mind by so much. So a dovish hike addresses the risk that the Fed commits a policy error by continuing to tighten too much at a time when the economy is naturally slowing. Yes, the uh, yes the economy is naturally slowing for, for a few reasons. First of all, the, 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 the tax cuts, uh, the enormous tax stimulus that's in the economy uh, will eventually peak and start to fade. And, and as you call, Keith called for that, the end of that, that, that effect by the end of 2019 anyway. Um, but also uh, the more interest rate sensitive sectors like housing has already started to slow back in the summer. So that was be, does be visible for six months. And then you have other, uh, other sectors, uh, technology, autos, uh, for all different reasons, um, their own special reasons. And then, of course, the energy sector, which is slowing down with the overall price. So you have a large part of the industrial sectors that are now uh, not at all growing as, as fast as, you know, faster than trend. They're going slower than trend. Again, each of these have their own different reason. Technology, because the technology cycle, and you've got all sorts of issues with with chips and, and exports and all of that, and, and Apple's orders as well. You might recall that when Apple themselves announced that their orders might be a bit lower, uh, I think the stock lost 100 billion or something like this. That was enough to to send the global stock markets in a in a, in a fall. So it's become a macro event if you think about this. Um, uh, Autos, because of the emission issues uh, and, and uh, new emission standards, meant that a lot of models can't get certified and therefore won't get delivered, and that's going to hold up auto production for another three to six months. So you've got all these things happening at the same time, and therefore sentiment generally is incredibly poor. So lots of mini-cycles coalescing in the same direction. So how, how do you position the duration of portfolios in the light of this outlook? Well, uh, you, you, uh, you all know that our bias was to be short, and of course we've mm -hmm. covered that short. Um, now, uh, of course, uh, when you get to the point where you know sentiment is so dark about the economy on the one hand, but also markets are getting so uh, so uh, despondent, um, that's probably a time when you have to rethink about putting it back. I mean, the there there are two outcomes from here. Either there is a general slowdown of the economy, which which is endogenous and it's happening, and it may just be that. The, the global economy cannot take interest rates in the U.S. at you know between two and three percent. It's just too high for the global economy. And that's a very bleak picture indeed. If that's the case. Alternatively, all these cycles are just what they are. They're, just, they're normal oscillations uh, in the in the economic um, cycle. And you know, in six months' time, uh, we will be back to thinking, oh, what were what were we so afraid of? Um, you might recall this time last year, we were actually serving on, surfing on a wave where the opposite thing was happening. You know, energy was at its peak, housing was growing, also sales were maximum, the tech sector was booming, particularly in hardware. So you've had, we've just gone through having had probably excessive expectations to now, in my view, probably uh, to, to expectations are too low. So for choice, we would probably be setting back shorts uh, when, when everybody's now giving up, frankly. Mm -hmm. So let's turn to, to credit markets. Uh, credit has become cheaper over the last couple of months. But one of the things we were talking about earlier was the, the, the extreme technical pressures on the, on the investment grade markets. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Yes, they, 
there, there are some long-term technicals and short-term technicals also all happening at the same time, which is, um, again, not great for sentiment. Um, and it's, it's very grim right now if you think about it. So uh, the long-term effect was that for investors in, uh, in Europe and uh, Japan who traditionally have bought U.S. securities and hedged back the currency, uh, the, the, the return uh, for investment-grade securities, investment-grade bonds in dollars, headed back into their domestic currency was actually lower than their domestic yields. And so that trade doesn't make any sense anymore. They've done this for years. We see that in our own with our own clients, and basically they've given up on that trade. It, it really uh, doesn't make any sense. So that support for investment grade, particularly U.S. investment grades, basically been absent. Uh, you've also had, of course, the impact uh, in Europe of the ECB stopping or announcing that they would stop their bond purchases and the market repricing in light that they would stop. So taking the ECB out of the equation, that's been bad for investment grade. So that that's the long-term factor. And in the short term, uh, there are also some accidents going on, uh, a couple of credit funds being liquidated, um, and we hear those liquidations going through the market, um, which makes it very, very difficult to trade. And most of these sales have to go through uh, by year end. It looks like they're trying to liquidate those funds by year end. So, uh, so there might be some short-term relief come the beginning of January. Yeah, yeah our credit desk right now is saying, <clears> look, you, you, you really should wait until these things are done until mm-hmm. to, to re-establish what the true prices are. Mm. But we see securities being down several points. I mean, as in price points, not basis points. Uh, sometimes just because someone's selling and there's no one there to buy. Mm. And if we move out further on the risk spectrum towards high yield and leveraged loans, with a slowing economy, especially in the U.S., those are the markets you'd expect to be fundamentally the most challenged. Uh, are prices now reflecting the difficult environment? I mean, they are. I mean, look, loans loans are floating rate instruments, so they only go down in price, not because of the duration impact, but because the spread, uh, because the credit, uh, the notion of the credit worthiness of the borrower um, is declining. And loans are probably down sort of two points or something like this. Now, if you go back to 2015-16, the last, you know, when fracking was literally, lots of fracking companies were going bankrupt and so on, loan, loan points, uh, loans prices dropped by more, much more, five, six, seven points. Uh, so you've had these, you know, the loan market goes through these, these excesses from time to time. Um, this is not, uh, now the several sectors are under pressure. Retail is one of them. We talked about it many times. Um, uh, there's clearly been some, some pain there. And, and there are other sectors as well that are also under pressure, like auto, auto parts and so on. Um, all of these, in our view, are much more about the prices were too high, and or at least yields were too low, let's put it this way. There's been, there'd been too much capital committed to this. And if you take away the support from, again, the Japanese buyers, the European buyers who are buying the CLO, uh, the, high tra- the, the highly rated tranches of equities and so on, uh, of, of the CLOs, um, you find that, again, you have got a technical situation, which is not great. And uh, loan issuance has been enormous as well, so there's been lots of supply. I think it's more technical than truly expectation of a recession. Um, you know, I, I don't really believe that we're about to enter in a recession. Um, and I think loan prices are just declining because supply and demand balances. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other side, securitized, not, not, all, not, all, not, not all CLOs or securitizations are the same. Um, on the securitized markets, where you can get cash flows that are secured by physical assets that throw off, you know, uh, financial flows like rental incomes and so on, then you are getting, in a way, for similar rating, you're getting much better 
credit quality in a sense, and that's actually performing much better. So that's that's a place to that's a place to look for value right now as well. And if you read the 2019 outlooks that your team has been publishing, the two that struck me as being the most positive, one, one was Michelle talking about the outlook for securitized credit, mm. uh, and the other was Jim Barrineau on the value now in particularly dollar emerging market debt. With securitized credit, the issue is that it hasn't had the same crowding as some of the corporate credit markets have had, no. so is isn't isn't as vulnerable to disappointments as other sectors are. That's true. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't long ago that a lot of people still thought of securitizers uh, as a dirty word, right? From uh, you know going back to the uh, CDO squares and all the abuses of the of the great uh, financial crisis. So there are quite a few buyers that have basically been out absent from this, um, starting with banks who don't generally don't traffic in those in that anymore. So securitization has been rebuilding its credentials over the last few years. Better regulation, better documentation, all of that. So she's right; it's much less crowded. Um, the variety of collateral that you you buy is a lot is is enormous. Um, you, you know, it could be containers, it could be all sorts of things. Um, uh, um, you know, it could be leases, equipment leases, and so on, uh, or commercial real estate even. So there's lots of very different sources of that of cash flows, um, and and that is a more robust, in a sense, asset class than just mm-hmm. pure the pure corporate um, pure, pure, pure corporate market. And in emerging markets, um, yeah, I mean, clearly uh, it's not crowded largely because people have deserted it. Um, the the strong dollar regime uh, plus rising raising interest rates plus fears of a of a trade war have been a toxic cocktail for emerging markets generally. Equities, bonds, currencies um, uh, across the board. And Jim, obviously, it attracts our attention to the fact that yes, uh, you know, what the damage is mostly being done. Um, uh, local you know, central banks and local markets have had to raise interest rates to defend their currencies, to balance their current accounts. Uh, currencies are very cheap. Uh, you get a huge markup in interest rates compared to Western interest rates. And if our thesis is right that the dollar is peaking and is about to, you know, having gone into long-term appreciation, is about to go on a, on a long-term depreciation trend, uh, then that's a pretty sweet spot for, you know, for emerging markets. A lot better than. Uh, than the previous regime. But the bigger risk is still that the, the trade dispute is unresolved, and it's not clear at this point how it's going to get resolved. That presumably will hang to some extent on the emerging markets. Yes, uh, it's true that uh, trade disputes or, or a major disruption in the uh, in, in the volume of trade is, is bad for everybody. Um, now, the most exposed countries are, are the exporters, um, the big exporters, and, and of course, China is one of them, but uh, Germany in particular and, and Europe is also a big exporting continent. Um, within those industrial value chains, um, I think there's quite a few emerging markets that, that have you know, specializations that are still you know, quite valuable. Um, now, you have to be selective. You can't just you know, buy the... You know, and we are. You know, we never buy the index, right? We always go uh, where we are very selective country by country. Uh, but there's some countries out there whose, you know, whose external, um, you know, again, barring barring a disaster scenario where trade stops, um, uh, and and if you recall, trade volumes going back, you know, have been strong of late, but they were very weak two or three years ago. I mean, they they went for a phase of being almost uh, having no growth in trade volumes, um, and uh, and then, you know, when growth picked up globally, then trade volumes went back to growing by five six percent. Mm-hmm. Typically about double the, the global GDP growth. Uh, now they've slowed again back to three percent. So they're not declining. Um, 
if you had a trade war that very much stopped imports and exports and you had you know you went back to full protectionism then that would be disastrous for yeah. emerging yeah. markets but that's not our scenario mm. but the, the relatively um, benign outlook for emerging markets on the debt side is consistent with what we're hearing from our equity colleagues for emerging market stocks as well I want to yeah. just finish up on Europe um, we haven't heard as much about Italy in the last couple of weeks as we did in September October when their initial budget plans are revealed. Is that a risk that's gone away, or is it still going to come back to haunt us in 2019? Well, it, Italy will still be a risk uh, for a couple of reasons. I think the, the risk that the government would pick a fight with the European Union um, to, to, to just to score points politically at home, uh, that is actually probably receding. Um, why? Because, of course, when yields approach 4%, they knew that, uh, you know, we were in a situation where the, and, and let's not let's not forget, the ECB is getting out of bond buying as well. So mm -hmm. the support from the ECB isn't there. And, you know, without the support of foreign investors, Italian yields at 4% is basically game over for the country. You just cannot, you know, you will never be able to stabilize your, your, your debt situation. The politicians know that, um, and they uh, they've experienced it. Um, and now they know that picking a fight with the EU is just probably the wrong thing to do. They have to find a way to deliver part of their promises, but you know, make sure that they keep things uh, you know, more stable. And clearly, there's willingness to compromise on, you know, with the Commission. So that's a good thing. Um, the fact that the French president had to concede as well is also giving them a bit of cover um, mm -hmm. to alleviate the, the austerity, um, which is where the problem started anyway. So I think Italy probably in the short term is in a better place. In the long term, the problem with Italy is it has no growth or no actually no endogenous growth. That's uh, you know it's losing its population. Uh, its youth, educated youth, are are basically emigrating. So the long term prospects for you know productivity to revive and and you know are are very are very very bad. And therefore, in the long run, uh, the country has pretty tough prospects. Um, but in the short run, yeah, the, the risk of immediate crisis is, is is going. The last bit of weakness about Italy, which everybody remembers, is still the banking system. Right? Even the best-run banks, uh, the Unicredits and so on, even the best-run banks are still holding a lot of Italian government bond, uh, bonds. Uh, they still have lots of non-performing loans on their books. So even if they're recapitalized, uh, and when I say best-run, they are really very well-run. Uh, they are still incredibly challenging uh, in a financial situation. Do you hold any peripheral European debt in global portfolios? We do. Um, of course, we'd have a preference for Spain um, uh, rather than Italy. Um, it might change actually because the, now the Spanish government having <laughs> their own uh, their own desires to also uh, um, increase spending and, and maybe undo some of the austerity. Um, of course, they're very far. They've been the best pupil in the class, so let's just be clear. Uh, Spain's done, in, you know, along with Portugal, have got have gone great length to to uh, improve their their fiscal situation. Um, and so we're not worried about the Spanish credit worthiness. But the point is, the trend is now going to turn less in favour of Spain and probably more in favour of Italy. Mm. Um, you know, but Italy will will have these waves of pessimism, and they've proven to be good buying opportunities. Great. Thank you, Philippe. We're out of time for this week. Let me just pick up a couple of points that Philippe has made. One is that looking at what the Fed might be announcing uh, on Wednesday afternoon, uh, the preferable outcome is a dovish hike, in other words, 
a, an increase in rates now, but more optimistic statements on uh, policy in 2019. Uh, we talked a lot about the extreme negative state of sentiment, both in economies and in markets, and also some technical factors in particular weighing on the credit markets at the moment, which may give a short-term bounce come uh, the new year. And then to end on a more optimistic note, two of the areas of the markets where uh, the fixed income team are looking to be more positive. One is securitized credit, uh, and the other is emerging markets debt, particularly dollar debt, where yields have reached a point where they're discounting most of the risks that are visible at the moment. So that's it for this week. Um, thank you again for listening, whether it's to the call or to the podcast, and uh, we look forward to engaging again in 2019. This now concludes the conference. Thank you all very much for attending. You may now disconnect.